Hello, and welcome to the Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly why fantasy is the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And in this episode... We are transported to a magical Brooklyn in Danielle Jose Older's novel Shadow Shaper, which is the first in the Shadow Shaper Cipher series. So in this book, we follow Sierra. Uh, she's an Afro-Latina of Puerto Rican heritage, and she discovers she has powers to suffuse her art with spirits who then can become like corporeal and do her bidding, which is rad. And Sierra teams up with Robbie, a young Haitian guy who teaches her about shadow shaping, and the two must stop a bad white guy from messing up the whole world. So, you know, it's like the world in miniature, a microcosm. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Initial reactions. This is the first book I've read by Daniel Jose Older, and I'm impressed. I thought the pacing was solid. I absolutely loved the MC, Sierra's characterization and voice, and I thought the dialogue was excellent. I might have to pick up those other two books in the series. And you said the the audiobooks were good, right? Oh, yeah. I really liked the audiobook. It was really fun. Obviously, listen to it at two times the speed as I do. So uh, I didn't catch all the Spanish. But they translated a lot in the book for you, for people who don't speak the language. Um, we don't read a lot of fantasy that takes place in our real world. So this was a pretty good change of pace. Um, and I thought it dealt with like a lot of issues that we'll talk about later. And I was really happy to see them taken head on. Um, and I think this is the first book we've read by a dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Daniel. You are very special. You are. It's <laughs> in the lineup. Because we've read, I think this is episode 58 or 50, mm-hmm. we've read like 58 mm-hmm. books at least for the for the show and i think this is the first one yeah yeah oh i guess that brings us into why did we choose this book <laughs> <laughs> i just i just wrote a note that this is the first this guy we read for the pod yeah um and i don't know why we picked it I, it must have been on a list or something because it's an older book it's from like 2015 but good to get into the you know back catalog of books sometimes yeah and i think daniel jose older has been in the like ya writing world for a while now and we hadn't read anything by him or i hadn't even outside of the podcast i hadn't read anything had you no i haven't so i was like all right maybe it's time to at least put something something in there but yeah i enjoyed it and i'll i'll recommend this one i thought it was fun yeah and as always we like to you know include a diverse range of voices in our <laughs> podcast maybe not always dude voices <laughs> right but, um you know it's good to have books from latinx perspective um and you know having an afro latinx character pretty cool recommend if you like i would say bruja born by zoraida cordova mostly because it also takes place in brooklyn <laughs> yeah um Labyrinth Ross is the first book in that series, but I feel like it feels very different than this one because it takes place in a fantasy world. And then A Blade So Black by L.L. McKinney because it takes place in our real world. Badass, you know, women characters, I guess young women characters, finding out they have magic and about all the magic in the world. So pretty cool. Excellent recommendations. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. So I think I mentioned this at the top, but the book was written in 2015, which feels like a million years ago now. 
It's 2021 for whoever's listening. If you're listening in like 2050. <laughs> there was mention of flipping a phone close, which I was like, wait, what? Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it takes place in our modern world and makes use of technology um, in a way that most of us, I think, would understand today. They're like browsing the Internet, looking for facts, talk about Wikipedia. <laughs> And it takes place in Brooklyn, and we see Sierra's very diverse group of friends, but we also see the toll that gentrification is taking on their Brooklyn neighborhood. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about how, you know, they can't see any, they can't find any black or brown faces anymore, Mm -hmm. and there's just, like, hipsters everywhere, and yeah, they did, they made that very, like, visceral, you know? Yeah, they did for sure. There's this quote on page 101. I think this is when Sierra is, like, coming out of the club. Mm -hmm. here's a quote somehow sierra had stumbled into a quasi suburban enclave of standalone houses complete with front lawns and porch swings. porch swings it was creepy it's on page 101 and it's just like oh yeah it is it feels very like stepford wives and gentrification just like tries to take away the character and i don't know individuality of places and just put a verina like a veneer of niceness and like acceptability and it's just bullshit yeah, yeah. And um, in his stand-up special, Michael ha- Che has a joke about white women coming into Brooklyn and taking it over. And they said, this is mine's now. And I think that's something you can kind of <laughs> see within this story kind of happening and going on. So <laughs> white people come in and take over places. It's what they do. <laughs> it is. It is. Yep. It's the colonizer way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought it was also cool that we got to um, have like Coney Island appears in the um, like the climactic scene, you know, when Sierra is going to become Lucera eventually, Mm -hmm. right? She like goes and meets with the spirit and it's in, she has to like decipher this poem. And I thought that was like part of the world building too, you know, is like this, this poem that they're um, like trying to, it points to like different geographic locations throughout Brooklyn and, Eventually, it leads them to Coney Island. And this reminds me, it's just like there was something in the air with like Brooklyn Brujas series and with Zoraida and Shadow Shaper with Daniel Jose Older because um, I don't know. It just, I love the like merges like the creepy paranormal into like the mundane urban. And it's just, yeah. it's great. Yeah. And there's something about like a carnival shut down at nighttime that is just like always kind of creepy. Um, I've never been to Coney Island, but I would not want to be there at nighttime when no one's around. (laughs) It just sounds like a horror movie waiting to happen, right? It does. Yeah. (laughs) Let's discuss all things magic. So in this book, we have shadow shapers. Um, Sierra's a shadow shaper. Robbie's a shadow shaper. And they can create these kind of beings from their art. So Sierra and Robbie use their visual art, while Sierra's grandpa had in the past used his stories um, to like protect them or create these beings, which I thought was really cool. And it wasn't something we had really seen before. Yeah, it was totally unique as far as I'm trying to think if we've seen a magical system that's this connected to like artistic expression. And I don't think so. Have we? I can't think of a time either. It's mostly like elemental or fighting or I don't know. 
right is it like i feel like this yeah like i feel like this could be a really cool like graphic novel like if they made this into a graphic novel it would be like beautiful oh my gosh excellent idea let's throw that out (laughs) into the universe and make it happen how do i call daniel jose older do i just like you know he has a contact page on his website message him on um on instagram (laughs) just be like hi i have none of the skills required for this endeavor but i think it would be a good idea yeah yeah. (laughs) we also so and robbie is also uses his his tattoos which pay homage to his ancestry which is both taino which is the indigenous inhabitants of what the island is now called hispaniola um and then also his like enslaved ancestors um and from africa and he's got even like like a little like french white colonial dude tattooed on him too so he's like and all of these these tattoos like eventually become animated and like help they like fight for him and stuff it's so cool yeah i was like not expecting that with the tattoos i thought that was really cool although i'm gonna be like bro how old are you like what how, how did you get these tattoos <laughs> those are like serious pieces those that's big i know that's a lot of time <laughs> most unrealistic thing in the whole night <laughs> <laughs> was a 16 year old having like a full back piece exactly <laughs> Um, in in addition to like these animated drawings or stories we also have like this possessions it was like almost like a zombie possession or something called a corpuscule corpuscule i just kept thinking the book is on a like core puzzle oh core but like with less of a puzzle but like with less of a southern (laughs) it's like it's it's spelled c-o-r-p-u-s-c-u-l-e so i was like is there I don't know. It was I was yeah. having a hard time pronouncing this. Um understandable. So like these they take the bodies and put these like spirits in them. And they also had this like it was like a multi-ghost spirit called a throng haint. So lots of cool like ghostly paranormal beings. Yeah. It was it was interesting. I think a haint sounds familiar. Like that might have something to do with voodoo or something, which would make sense like bringing in different cultures like robbie's from haitian or yeah he has like haitian ancestry and stuff so mm-hmm. i'll look it up later <laughs> <laughs> i can look it up when i edit it's fine <laughs> um and then sierra eventually becomes lucera but she goes for a long time without knowing her powers because of her abuelo's machismo so like sexism basically who he didn't think it was like cool to teach women how to do magic and it's just like ugh, i roll yeah yeah and all because of like one person like his daughter sierra's mom was like not into it and he's just like all right that's good enough i give up <laughs> i'm like bro what are you doing come on come on um and then there's on uh, when robbie's like explaining how the magic system works to sierra in more detail he they have this conversation about like what are the tools that's necessary in order to make shadow shaper magic so on page 134 and 135, it talks about like the importance of intentionality and how, and that just seems like I listen to a lot of like, I don't know, witchy podcasts and shit like that, or read books about that shit. Um, and that's definitely a through line, you know, it's like the, the vibe you're putting out there is crucial to like the si- type of magic that you're shaping in the world. So I just thought that was a cool part that I wanted to bring up. <laughs> Now we're going to talk about conflict villains and good and evil in our segment. Get me Kylo Ren. 
So I would say biggest villain, white people trying to steal things from communities of color, <laughs> like their magic and their powers and their homes and like brown and black bodies in general. <laughs> like that wick dude. What the fuck? Was he dead at the end? I don't remember. I think that uh, Sierra like emptied him of all of his oh, powers. Right. So for him, yeah. that's probably worse than being dead. Yeah, I remember him kind of like shriveling up or something. So like maybe he turned into like adjacent. this like John Wick cucumber. like a little raisin yeah yeah um but yeah there's like a lot of theft going on and um that wick guy was like trying to combine all these different i guess religious or spiritual beliefs to become very powerful person and it didn't work out for him luckily he sierra got him in the end yeah (laughs) And this is like a there's a connection here that is drawn in the book to anthropology and like the legacy of white, Mm -hmm. like, quote unquote, scientists or whatever, studying communities that like aren't from Western Europe, basically, and Mm -hmm. fetishizing them and also like extracting their knowledge without giving any like stealing their artifacts and all this stuff. And so Nydia, Nadia who was the um, librarian, the librarian Mm -hmm. at Columbia. It was, I thought it was cool how we talked, how the book talked about their, they're an anthropologist studying how other anthropologists like intervene and like, I don't know, do bad shit basically like violate ethics rules, not rules, but like, I don't know, just like have that white colonizer mentality going in. And that means like, I can take this and judge it. And this is mine now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is interesting because you kind of like it's good to know about different cultures and different um, ways people go about living their lives. But at the same time, it's like, how do you do that without also stealing from them and, you know, also passing them on bad diseases that they haven't been <laughs> in contact with? You know, like there's just a whole host of issues. I'm sure that maybe anthropologists talk more about now, but probably haven't been talked about in the past. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's also a mention, I thought this was also like part of the world building as far as like putting us in this urban setting, um, in New York, like in our contemporary world, because there's a mention of people, especially young brown men in Sierra's community getting killed by the cops. One of the mm-hmm. examples is Vincent on page 81 of the book, like her friend's older brother. Um, but just like this is, uh, in addition to like all the gentrification and stuff we're seeing that they're also these communities of color are within like a police state essentially and they're being yeah. monitored and so that that like complicates how all this magic is working and who they're reaching out to are they going to call the cops or not and uh things like that yeah yeah probably time to find some different resources of people to call when you need help in particular situations so yeah it's I was glad that they brought this up in the book because, you know, young people probably more so in um, in cities where they there's just like a lot of people together and you like really can have a big community of black and brown people are probably more over police than, you know, people in rural communities. So it was good to see this brought up in the book.
Onward, magical friends. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, gender, and ability. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. So this book really took on dealing with anti-blackness in Latinx communities. Um, Sierra's aunt in particular was terrible. Um, she was talking poorly about black people, giving Sierra shit for her hair texture. And I was really happy when Sierra told her off. And, um, you know, I can't speak for anything within the Latinx community ob- because I'm not from that community. I almost said obviously, but I don't think it is obvious. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, I think it was good to show, you know, sometimes how proximity to whiteness and looking white can turn back on like can create situations to create anti-blackness within communities um so i appreciated seeing that and i think this is something i've seen people talking about on instagram and if i can find them i will send that information out into the world to you all um but i appreciated seeing this we also get some talk about body shame in the book mostly like internally from Sierra, I think just kind of like not feeling like she fit in with like her community standards of what was beautiful, um, talking about her hair, um, and her butt and her boobs and just kind of like feeling shame about how they do look or how she felt that they should look. And this just made me really sad. I just, you know, I think it's hard in, you know, for different communities have different standards and then, but we live in a world with mostly white people. And I think this also comes up a bit in, um, oh, now I can't remember, Poet X, where we saw it in this book. Um, but we also saw it in the Poet X where like this adultification of young women, like within the community, like in their city centers. Um, so it was just like a sad part to read. And I feel bad that, you know, kids have to deal with this because, they're too young. They're too young to be worried about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And Sierra talking about like her belly and mm-hmm. and things like that. And uh, yeah, but then not not getting body shame from her friends, but from this like societal messaging where white people are just like vastly overrepresented. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, we're like where we hold up people like Sofia Vergara as like the pinnacle of what Latinx women should look like and it's like well not everyone looks like that so you know it's it it makes it kind of hard you know yeah no no shame to Sofia Vergara obviously she can do and look however she wants (laughs) yeah kind of in the same vein as far as like body body shame and like sexism that's like very tied to white supremacy um and I don't know, just like the how certain bodies are available for comment and like, uh, you know, more than other ones. So like Sierra talks about just getting catcalled in the street and how that's like, I don't know, a part of her existence. Yeah. And and it's interesting because I think um, she doesn't feel any danger around it. Like she's not concerned for her physical safety in any way. Um, But we she does feel like like she shouldn't have to deal with that and she shouldn't have to, you know, obviously. Mm -hmm. But, um, I only point that out because there was a video a while ago of a white woman walking through a black neighborhood and getting catcalled and talking about how dangerous she felt, like how it felt very dangerous to her. And I'm not, 
um, minimizing that fe- feel like that feeling of threat. But I do think it might have been steeped in anti-blackness because we do see Sierra dealing with the same things and not feeling a sense of physical threat, but just that she shouldn't have to deal with it. And I do think those are two very different things. Yes. Yes. So. Thank you for, point- <laughs> thank you for putting that there, putting that out there because yes, you're totally right that it's not <laughs> the video you're talking about. That's definitely like racism. <laughs> obviously <laughs> it's like racism 101 yeah exactly like oh she's clutching her purse yeah i'm like bro it's fine this is just exactly. like a thing that some people deal with but it's like like they're not gonna hurt you <laughs> like yeah but i also understand like why some people will feel threatened in different situations i'm not saying that they shouldn't i just mean like sometimes we need to interrogate why we feel that there is a threat in place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> i would say like the most prominent um, kind of exploration representation of disablement in the story was Lacero, which is um, Sierra's abuelo, and he has a has a stroke previously because he was he was working with this John Wick guy. Is his name was like literally John Wick, right? I'm not making that up. I don't remember his first name. I just remember <laughs> his last name was Wick, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's John Wick. But anyway, we'll go with it. We'll go with it. Not the Keanu Reeves John Wick. A different John. Yeah, Wick. different John Wick. Different John Wick. Um. But then Lazaro has a stroke, and we, it, which may or may not be connected with the shenanigans that are going on with this Wick guy. And then he becomes more disabled. He has limited mobility. He comes in and out of consciousness of like the present moment versus like being in the past um, versus like sleeping. And um, yeah, comes in and out of lucidity, I guess, is that's the word I'm looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And the family, the women in the family are taking care of him. Yeah, it just it showed the like interdependence I guess of the family and at the same time like how you can be so close and yet so distant from someone you know emotionally or like knowing the history or as far as like Lazaro's sexism yeah and I also think it shows like within communities of color in particular there's like a feeling of responsibility to take care of your family even if they've done you wrong and like you kind of have to stick around even after you've been you know mentally or physically abused and we kind of see that where Lazaro was not a good grandfather he doesn't seem like he was probably a great dad but like the women feel the responsibility that they have to continue to care for him and I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do but I just think there's like pressure in communities of color to take care of the older generations you know and, and even Sierra, we see taking care of him, even though he kind of is like <laughs> super sexist and didn't teach her <laughs> anything. Um, so very interesting look at family dynamics. Um, I would also say that Sierra and her friends really shut down this conversation about calling things crazy. Um, they're on the train going to like find Lucero at Coney Island Um, And they kind of talk about like what it means to call something crazy and like why it wasn't okay for their friend to say that, like to call Sierra crazy. And I don't think we see that a lot in books or a discussion about it a lot. So I thought that was very refreshing. I'm glad you wrote this down because I also found this notable. There was like actual, I don't know, like a page and a half or something like they're having an actual discussion about why it is or isn't appropriate. And yeah, 100% agree with you. I wish more books did this. Yeah, it was great finally it's time for shipwrecked a segment about asexuality sexuality sex romance and relationships and sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own okay i don't know about you 
but I didn't really buy into Sierra and Robbie. Like they were just like all of a sudden attached at the hip. And I was sure that he was working with that wick guy and that we were going to find out like he was the one who had been watching her all the time. I don't know if we found out who was watching her all the time, but either way, I didn't really buy this, this ship. What did you think? I thought it was cute. I kind of (laughs) liked it. I guess I was such a sappy romantic. (laughs) I'm so skeptical. Oh my God. I like the shy artist type. And then (laughs) Sierra. I don't know. I just like thought I liked how they were, you know, exploring becoming friends and then becoming more than friends potentially. And that it didn't, I don't know. It didn't necessarily feel forced to me, but, um, I guess I can see where you're coming from that like it, it was pretty quick once they started hanging out and talking. I mean, it's a short book, so that might be part of it. But I was just like, dang, I thought you were telling all your friends you didn't like him. And now you're like telling them to shut up because you like him. Like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> she changed her mind. Yeah, that's fine. He's got that's hot okay. tattoos. Can you blame uh, her? Yeah, I know. No, I cannot. You know, I cannot. <laughs> I also really like Sierra's friend. What was her friend's name? Um, she had a friend named Benny, a friend named Izzy. Oh, Benny. Benny. I really like Benny. They were like cute friends, like very different from each other, but like somehow have come together and just their BFFs. And I really like that. It was sweet. <laughs> mm, love it. The friendships were really, they were well-developed too. And it didn't feel, they were like side characters, but I don't know. They felt like they were like appropriately included you know Mm because they were there for like some of the coney island stuff and i liked how they were actually had conversations about like no i don't feel comfortable and a few of them like didn't go for the final fight scene or whatever yeah and it didn't seem like there were hard feelings about it yeah and you should give permission to people to back out if they don't want to do something you know yeah totally yeah not too much for shipwrecked i don't know i got i'm in i would be interested to see how it develops or whether it develops in the other novels Yeah. Well, we have two more books, so we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in Kill Your Darlings. Teenagers who actually get help from adults when there are problems. What a concept. I was like, wow, you know what to do when you need help? You ask an adult. (laughs) Excellent modeling for those young readers out there. Yes, yes. Ask a trustworthy adult. That's why she asked her un- her uncle, who I think was like her godfather, and the librarian. You just need adults in your life that you can trust. <laughs> yep, they're not necessarily going to be part of your blood family. Yeah, yeah. I really liked her uncle. I think it's Stanley. Was that his name? I can't remember all the I names. don't remember. I just remember this. Uh, I don't remember the name exactly, but there was this funny interaction at the end where it was, Maybe it was like Mauricio or something. I can't remember. Manny? No. Manny was one of the people who was possessed. But they were, yeah, they were yeah. like, um, you drive really wild. And I respect that about you. <laughs> oh, yeah. The librarian is like, was like, oh, is your is your uncle, is, does he have a girlfriend? And I was just like, this is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. But also, I guess it seemed like he had had been within like, part of the legal system in some way like he's getting in trouble a lot and they didn't like depict him as like this like hardened criminal or something like he was just like a normal guy and that's also very much appreciated <laughs> we love to see it the dialogue and I thought, and the voice were bo- were all very well written 
I thought that like the dialogue really was like full and moved the plot along. It wasn't just like empty placeholders or like silly banter. Yeah, yeah. Everything like had its its need, you know. Like there were some info dumps in the dialogue and that worked well instead of being like a ton in the exposition. Well, it makes sense because I think this is like the best way. One of the best ways to write fantasy is like when it's someone new into the <clears throat> when it's someone new into the world and the author can have it explained to that character so that we learn at the same time as they do. And it makes it I think it's better than doing the big info dump in the exposition or whatever. It's very effective and it's, I think, less forced. It's like a more natural yeah. way to get all that information, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I, we've already laughed about this a little, but like the dude literally named John Wick. <laughs> when did John Wick the movie come out? I'm gonna I don't know. Look it up, so it up right now. See. Clickety click. Clickety click. Now I'm going to use my phone so there's no clickety clicks. <laughs> all right. Oh, video game. Okay, the first movie came out in 2014. So maybe Danielle Jose Older has something against John Wick slash Keanu Reeves. But just because the book was published in 2013 doesn't mean it was written in 20. I mean, 2015 doesn't mean it was written in 2015. Okay, yeah, that's right? very true. Like, no, yeah, it that's might have been super written true. a few years before. Yeah, probably. Yes. So you got to dig those things out of the slush pile and mm -hmm, get it mm -hmm. go and make it into a book. But yeah, I just kept picturing Keanu Reeves. <laughs> it's funny. I was picturing like an old man that looked like like Colonel Sanders-esque or like, you know, in the first Jurassic Park movie, that like old man who like starts Jurassic Park. And I'm like, bro, why are you bringing back dinosaurs? This seems like a terrible no idea. No one asked you to was, do this. No one asked for this. <laughs> but I was picturing that guy. <laughs> ah, okay, okay. This little like archaeology hat on. <laughs> Love it. I also adore the concept of Sierra's brother's band. Juan has a band. So it's like a metal band called uh, Culebra, which means like um, snake. Oh, okay. There's a quote on page 73 that I want to read because it was, it's just so, the writing about music is so good. She's walking and listening to her brother's band in the headphone, in her headphones. Juan's band careened into another chorus on her headphones. Cuando la luna llena crooned Culebra's lead singer, Pulpo. His voice wrapped a perfect velvet strand around Sierra. The music roared to a new height of thrashing, static-laced madness, and then got suddenly extra chill as the syncopated bass, Tumbao, trundled out, followed by the clack-clack of the clave and then the swinging horns and warbling keyboards. Ah, uh, just like, so good. Such good, like, description of what's going on, sound-wise. It works for me, at least. No, it's funny how you say that because I was listening to the audiobook and I'm just now realizing that there wasn't music in the audiobook, but I felt like I could hear what was going on. So nice. <laughs> so really well written. Yeah. And I'm not I don't know that much about music. So like I'm not trained. I never played an instrument or anything. So it's pretty cool. It's just like very vivid language used to describe the different instruments and the sounds and mm -hmm. the effect that the beat and stuff produces in your body is just oh, so good. Loved it. It was great. Danielle Jose Older has an amazing post on BuzzFeed. I think I've recommend this, recommended this in previous episodes before, but it's called 12 Fundamentals of Writing the Other and the Self, How to Respectfully Write from the Perspective of Characters Who Aren't You. And it's like this tongue-in-cheek, like, listicle sort of thing. It has some good writing advice, and it talks about, like, the importance of doing research and, like, how the baseline is that you're bad at this, and then try to understand that and move forward from there, and that your, like, positionality and power matters. And then, like, I also... 
instead of the other, maybe like try and write yourself and why you feel like you're entitled to write people who aren't yourself is like kind of the like tongue in cheek thing at the end. What is it? I can't say it as good as he does. Um, have you considered the why? This is the number 12, like the last point. Have you considered the why and have you considered the no? <laughs> This is him. Why do you feel it falls to you to write someone else's story? Why do you have the right to take on another's voice? And should you do this? The answer isn't always no. As writers, we are constantly entering other people's heads. But too often, we don't stop to consider whether it's the right thing to do. Sometimes the answer is no. Yeah, very good points. It is interesting, though, because I don't think we've read... Okay, actually, we do read YA books who are written by cis female authors who will write in dual perspectives. But I don't know that there are that many books written by like cis men writing from from like a cis female perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously, we haven't read them for this show. But um, <laughs> I mean, in my other readings, <laughs> I'm trying to think. But maybe it's because I don't seek out male authors. Cis male authors. Yeah, yeah, I don't either. So it's just like my maybe it's my selection bias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I've seen too many of the like dudes writing like the the boobs jiggled Roman, down oh the stairs God. or whatever like those hilarious as if i'm constantly lists. aware of where my boobs are in space at all or times like as if I they don't... were like sentient beings in and of themselves yeah. <laughs> i know yeah i'm like i don't know what they're doing all the time <laughs> yeah i guess you're right it's not just it's our default we don't necessarily seek out those voices so i don't know well if 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 listeners people out there in the interwebs have suggestions we might take them we might we might (laughs) no promises (laughs) before we end it's time for real talk did reading this book make your perspective change in any way or did it make you interrogate a concept or system or trend that you hadn't before kelly take it away because you're the only one who writes things in here (laughs) (laughs) not true i think i made you do it last time (laughs) I want to bring back our friend John Wick one last time (laughs) for just a victory lap here. Uh, When Sierra is talking to, how do you pronounce their name? You listen to the audiobook, friend. I think it was Nadia. Nadia. Nidia? I think it's Nidia. Nidia? Because I thought they were saying Nivia. N-Y-D-I-A. Nidia, I think sounds probably right. Who knows? And so she's talking about Wick in particular. He really does mean well, or he did. This is on page 241. And I just want to be like, yeah, impact matters way more than intent. You know, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, if like it doesn't your good intentions don't trump like the damage that you do to the lived experience of other people. Yes, 100 percent agree. And I think we see this come up a lot where people are like, well, I was trying to do the right thing. And it's like, "Okay, well, good for you. That didn't happen. So (laughs) exactly. So be accountable. Did you say a cannibal? Accountable. Oh, accountable. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? This got weird. What? I think we need to stop recording. Let's talk about this. <laughs> All right. Card questions, Jesse. Let's let's hear them. Sound effects as Kelly hits herself in the face with the <laughs> card deck. <day. laughs> Kelly shuffling through the cards, looking at the questions, but not picking them. <laughs> I just want people to know what's happening, you know? <laughs> like, some of these are like, what do you like about this book? And it's like, I don't know. We just talked about for 30, 35 minutes what we liked about the yeah, book. Yeah, we like, just had a whole discussion or about Or, like, that. descriptions that captivated you. And I'm like, well. No, we, I didn't write that down. Literally just <laughs> talked about that. 
or like things that aren't applicable like was the book believable i mean yes right yes i mean we're all suspending our disbelief here for this yeah, fantasy. fantasy book <laughs> okay i'll just i'll just ask you this and put you on the spot how would you describe the style of the author oh um I don't think I have the language to describe books very well. I know I was an English major, but <laughs> maybe it wasn't a very good one. It felt like very like, oh, actually, I don't want to bring up this author. So it was very like in line with Sarita Cordova. Like, I don't know. It was YA. <laughs> it felt very YA to me. How would you describe it? I guess I would describe it as like very visceral and immediate. Um, as far as like the descriptions of things and how the action was just action. Oh my god, action was described, <laughs> <laughs> and also just like fun. I don't know. It, it yeah. didn't feel like it took itself too seriously. It like no. knew that it was supposed to be a a fun book for children or yeah. young adults. Okay, I said I wouldn't bring up this author, but I'm gonna do it anyways. But like, I feel like this came out like not that long after. Okay, well I guess it's like seven years after the first book of like the mortal instrument series by cassandra clare mm. um and it feels like it fits in with like she didn't like invent the genre or whatever but i feel like uh fantasy books that take place in like our real world were very popular then twilight you know the, like stephanie meyer those kind of books so it feels like it really fits in with that even if it was a little bit afterwards i wonder if it was like really popular with people who read those books series you know hmm, good question why didn't you um can i ask you why you didn't want to bring up the mortal instruments books oh yeah because cassandra claire is the worst like bullying people and stuff i didn't realize until much later i know we read one of her books like previously but like it's not great same with stephanie meyer though like super racist stuff with like the native people the indigenous people oh in yeah Twilight, like the like necessity for whiteness for all vampires like all of those things so both of them like I loved those book series when I was younger but like if I if it were me I wouldn't like give them as suggestions because I think there's better books and like less morally corrupt authors out there <laughs> but I understand that young people don't always know the like going on of what's going on like underneath the surface like with authors and their life outside of the books right so i also don't want to deter people from like reading what they want to read that's up to them but they seem like shitty people so <laughs> try not to give them too much airtime. i see <laughs> thank you for going that that's uh getting into the nitty-gritty thank you yeah yeah appreciate it yeah of course Thank you for listening to The Library Coven. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of The Burning God by R.F. Kuang, which is decidedly not YA, so hold on to your hats, everyone, and be warned. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you magical folks. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at The Library Coven. You can subscribe to the Library Coven on the podcast app of your choice, and we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other rad people out there. If you're able to support our labor financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee. You can support us monthly on Patreon or by shopping at our bookshop.org affiliate page. Until next time, stay magical. Stay magical.